0: For more than 700 years, the inhabitants of Hale, Belgium, have taken the mentally ill and disabled into their homes as guests or boarders, as they're called. However, among the people of Hale, the term mentally ill is never heard. The family care system, as it's known, is resolutely non-medical. When boarders meet their new families, they do so, as they always have, without a backstory or clinical diagnosis. Throughout the town's long history, many both inside and outside the psychiatric profession have wondered whether this is not only a form of therapy in itself, but perhaps the best form there is. From Mike Jay's article, The Hail Question in Aeon, edited by Ed (laughs) Lake. Welcome to Redeeming Disorder, the podcast where we share real stories of mental disorder to overcome stigma, redeem perceptions, and start a conversation. Hello, hey, it is episode two. Laura, can you believe people are still listening to us?
1: This is crazy. This is probably the craziest thing that's ever happened to me, <laughs> just saying that. So um, yeah, it was just so amazing to get that positive feedback for this uh, project. I didn't know that people would actually listen and get excited about it. Did you?
0: Uh, I thought like my girlfriend would listen and maybe my <laughs> my sister, um, but no, I didn't think that the conversations between us in our pajama pants would be heard <laughs> so widely. Um, I know, it's seriously. Been, it's been incredible, the reaction. I mean, hearing mm-hmm. the reaction, hearing so many people respond positively that they really got something out of this, they're going to keep listening, makes me so motivated to keep bringing good interviews, good shows, and mm-hmm. truly help people because that's what I think we have the opportunity to do.
1: Yeah, I I mean, Um, You guys, those of you who are listening, just thank you so much for all the emails we got. I mean, we just got a flood of emails and um, it was just thank you for sharing your stories with us. A lot of you went into great detail about just your own personal struggles and it was an honor for us to read them. Um, It was, you know, like we said, it was both exciting to receive such positive feedback. But I think I just I also felt like this shared burden of this topic that we all deal with. Did you feel that way, Spencer?
0: Yeah, I mean, just sort of a responsibility to do something that a lot of what we heard was uh, similar of stories of people who have trouble getting care, have trouble really feeling heard when they do get care Mm -hmm. and feel misunderstood, feel like there really is a gap for us to bridge.
1: And um, if that's you who's listening, you're feeling like, man, I feel so alone. I'm not getting the care that I need. Um, we're First of all, hang in there. We're pulling for you. And we've listed some resources in the show notes that you can take a look at. Um but also I want to say I heard from some of you who just are afraid of getting help like maybe you're afraid of the shame or the stigma you might experience and I get that I've been there I remember the first time I was going to counseling I didn't want to tell anybody I didn't even want to be seen going into <laughs> that door so um but I just encourage you be brave and you know put yourself um in a situation where you can get that help that you need
0: yeah I mean even as we've started getting guests Um, You can really feel that it's hard for people to open up. But I think because it's so hard, it's actually really important that the more people who are willing to open up and the more people who come on can share something that's relatable, that's informative. uh, I think that's the only way we change it for the future people who will hopefully open up. And uh, yeah, just a sincere thank you to everyone who's been willing to. We can't talk to every person, but we are so happy to hear your stories and to talk to as many of you as we can.
1: And speaking of guests, um, why don't you tell everybody about who we have on today?
0: Yeah. So today we have my good friend, Angela Losey, as our first guest other than us. Um, And she has an awesome perspective on being a family member of someone who struggles with, you could call it a disorder, um, really just a lifelong struggle in the aftermath of an injury that occurred to her brother when he was very young. And she gets into a lot from how relationships change through something like that amongst the whole family, um, how professionally... She is now trying to help people who go through things similar to what her brother went through. And she grapples with a lot of how our current methods of dealing with someone who faced an injury or someone who faces a disorder um, could maybe be improved, could maybe be questioned. Mm -hmm. And we get into how labeling has a lot of power, how diagnosing has a lot of power and sort of rethinking how we judge and appraise people who might have a mental disorder. And that's where that quote I read at the beginning from an article about Hale, Belgium comes in, where something really cool about that town is it's a place where the mentally ill are taken into individual families' homes and have been for a long time, and their approach toward treating them, if you even want to call it treating them, is totally different from what we have here where it's more institutionalized and more based on how psychiatry has developed in the last 100 years and you know rather than coming out with a strong view of this is right and this is wrong uh, we really just want to raise a lot of questions and get people thinking about uh, how we can best serve people who struggle with this stuff
1: yeah, that's why I'm so excited about interviewing Angela because I think she's got a really um, just interesting perspective, especially just the difficulty of caring for someone emotionally at, and practically, like all the money that's involved. Um, and then also, you know, uh, she's going to talk a little bit about going to counseling as a little kid and sometimes. That's not handled well um, because we don't know how children respond to disorder emotionally. It's not what as adults as we would respond. And so she goes into that a little bit. And you would think with somebody growing up with all of that going on around her, she would want to go very far away from that. But instead, she's actually going into a profession where she interacts with a lot of people with disorder. And I'm just excited to hear about her perspective and why she decided to do that with her life.
0: Absolutely. Uh, I think it's a really cool first interview for understanding how you can interact with people who have disorder, understanding how you can understand them and thinking about our models and methods of care. So uh, I think without further ado, let's get to less of me talking and more of (laughs) Angela talking. I'm so excited. I hope you enjoy the interview and here we go. Angela, thank you so much for being our first interview, and welcome.
2: Yes, thank you. Happy to to be here. Yes, so excited to have you.
0: Yeah, we are really excited to have you because you represent sort of a whole half of what we want to do, where this is for people who have disorder and struggle with disorder, but also for people who might have loved ones, family members, friends who suffer from something, and they're trying to grapple with how do they deal with it how do they understand people and i know you with your story you know both in your family in your home in the past and now today professionally you've been surrounded by a lot of that and i think are a great person to talk about it so um yeah i guess do you want to just jump right in
2: Yeah, so I can start with my brother. Um, It's sometimes hard to talk about. When I was younger, my brother had kind of a life-altering accident. It changed all of our lives. So, I don't really share this story too often just because sometimes it's easier to just give people the gist of it. Just say he fell down the stairs and had an accident and this is how he is now and that's about it. I don't really dig Like, dive into it or tell the actual story. Yeah. Um, But growing up, we had a split-level house. Right when you enter, you can either go upstairs or downstairs. And both of my brothers, I have a younger and older. So my older brother, Kyle, he used to run and jump on the banisters that would hang over the bottom stairs. And one night, he said to me, Angela, watch this. And I turned around, and I watched him jump. But I didn't see him hit anything. I just saw him fall. So he was at the bottom of the stairs crying.
1: Mm. He's
2: nine years old and I'm seven years old. And both of my brothers, they used to just cry all the time and scare my parents. And then they'd all laugh because my mom would be so worried. And my mom just told him, Kyle, get ready for bed. We, We don't have time for this. She was helping my younger brother, Luke, with his nebulizer. He was having really bad asthma attack that night. I was getting ready for school, so I just remember him crying, crying, until his crying stopped, and my parents took it seriously when he was laying at the bottom of the stairs. Yeah. Um, He was unconscious, and they were trying to wake him up, and... I remember my mom yelling at me to grab a spoon because they were worried he was choking on his tongue, and oh I gosh. brought the spoon down. And all I remember is my dad calling 911 and the ambulance coming. And I just remember being seven years old and not really being worried. I just remember myself being really calm. Yeah. So my dad. Um, Did you he know went what to off- make of
0: it? I mean, as a seven-year-old.
2: Oh, I had no idea what was happening. I, I thought my brother was just playing around. Mm. And even in the severity that the ambulance came and he was um, lifted up and they put the neck brace on and everything. And mm. my dad went with him to the hospital. And I just remember my mom just hugging me. And I just, I was I wasn't worried at all. She just held me so tight. And I just kind of gave her a hug back and was kind of like, what? What's wrong? He'll be Mm. fine. And, I mean, all those events as a 7-year-old are kind of blurry. It's when you get Mm -hmm. older and you realize he was airlifted to another hospital. He had multiple surgeries that night.
0: It's incredible how much you remember to me. I mean, in our first episode, I talked about an experience when I was 10 and remember it very hazily, but it seems like this really, I mean, it can't not leave an impression, but it really... You come away with a really strong feeling from, from that time. Did, yeah, uh, absolutely. Is the mm-hmm. is the aftermath kind of a blur, or do you remember, sort of as so, it began to set in?
2: Um, so I remember my childhood was basically just going to the hospital every weekend. I mean, wow. so wow. he he had four brain surgeries over the course of a year. So he ended up having. Um, As I know now, as an adult, he had a subdural hematoma that affected him on the left side and Mm -hmm. today leaving his right side of his body paralyzed and then Mm -hmm. also paralyzed from the waist down. So he does have use of his left hand and he's able to move his torso but not able to walk, um, not able to really wiggle his toes or anything like that. Right. So I'll start back. So that night... I didn't realize this at the time, but he had been on life support for 17 days. Oh, my gosh. Wow. And my parents were kind of faced with the decision, what do you want to do? And I just remember my mom, a couple years ago, we talked about this. I mean, it's not really something you understand as a 7-year-old, but something you try to make sense of as an adult. And she told me how he was on life support, and they, they kind of encouraged them to maybe think about... Letting him go or withdrawing care mm. because quality of life and all of those things. But my parents, they they wouldn't let it. They wouldn't even consider the idea of turning off the life support. Yeah. So, I mean, in one sense, I'm really glad that they agreed on that. They, there was no one going the other way, one yeah. going the other. They they both agreed on it and right. came to the decision. They They had hope that he would make it. Eventually, he started breathing on his own. Um, they took out part of his skull so his brain could expand because wow. it was so swollen. Wow. So that stayed out for a few months. And then he ended up staying in the hospital for a little bit over a year before he came home with us. So yeah. I just remember my childhood. Um, My younger brother and I, we're all two years apart, so we were all really close. Mm -hmm. My younger brother and I, we just, we thought it was fun. We had Chris, so his accident, this is actually the 14th anniversary of his accident. Today? Yesterday was. Yesterday. Wow. Wow. Yesterday was the 14th anniversary of his accident. So I feel like every year it's just kind of hard to swallow. It's just one of those things that you just kind of think back of on the day and then kind of remember everything. Yeah. So, uh, I just remember my younger brother and I, so his accident happened in November, and then Christmas soon came. So, I just remember having Christmas at the hospital. It was so fun. All the nurses were our friends, <laughs> all yeah. of our family came. Um, I was like, as a kid, I was like, this is, this is a great thing to happen to me. Um, <laughs> I get to see my family all the time. Everyone's visiting us. Yeah. And then whenever my parents were forced with big decisions to make, we would stay at the neighbor's house. We would go stay at daycare longer. I was like, this is great. I'm, I'm living a yeah. dream here. Yeah. Life couldn't get better. And it didn't really, it never registered the fact that he was really missing from our lives. It was just, I think we just thought he was sleeping. It's yeah. still something I, I can't really make sense of as an adult. To, right. I just remember not feeling worried, I got a Game Boy Advance that year for Christmas. I remember in school, um, they put my younger brother and I in counseling and it was another thing that I didn't understand why. I
1: huh. it was
2: something that she would try to talk to me about my brother and I was like, Oh, he's yeah, he's in the hospital. He's he's there. I didn't yeah, I didn't have right. anything else to say. And they'd kind of um, I just remember my counselor. She would kind of hint me in a direction that I should be feeling, but mm. I wasn't quite as a kid, I was like, What? Yeah, you were and probably now, <laughs> baffled. Do you think yeah, and it's, <laughs> Do
0: you think that helped? I mean, did it help you make sense of anything or was it just more confusing?
2: I think it was just more confusing because I just it, none of it made sense to me. I wasn't feeling how they kind of thought I would be feeling. Yeah. Even though I don't think there's any way a seven, eight year old would feel right. through all this.
0: It's Yeah. I mean, it's got to be hard to sort of project everything you imagine someone would be feeling on a seven year old. And I can kind of relate. Right. Um, yeah. People kind of so, hint at how
2: you should feel. So I think it's, yeah, kid. it's,
0: it's really interesting how we handle treating a kid in that kind of a situation. Did it yeah. feel like how did it ultimately set in or how did your do you remember anything about how your perception of what had happened started to change
2: um it really started to hit me more as I hit high school I think Mm -hmm. um so I'll touch back so he after 17 days he did start breathing on his own again Um, after that year-long recovery in the hospital um he ended up coming home and I remember I was so upset when they had to switch my room to the basement mm-hmm. so Kyle could be upstairs so they could give him cares and everything. I just remember being so upset. I didn't want to go in the creepy basement and next to my little brother's room. I was like, no. Um, so two years after his accident, so one year in the hospital, one year later he's at home and everything, one day he just looks at all of us. He's nonverbal. He's he's wheelchair bound and fed by the G tube. And one day he looks at all of us and goes, "Hello!" And wow. we all looked at each other. We were like, "He can talk!" <laughs> we were <sighs> like, "Wow!" So I will never forget just that. What a Hello. way to announce he can he talk! He almost yeah, absolutely. He just kind of sang it, oh and we goodness. were all just astounded. So he was able to sit up in his wheelchair, but he had a chest strap that held him in place. He didn't really have the strength to hold himself up. He could hold his head up, but he mm. had a little a little pillow in the back if he wanted to rest it. So I think from right there, that gave my parents hope. That, yeah. cause the doctor said he'd never walk or talk. So then he started talking. I mean, he started watching TV, watching Spongebob, and he would just pick up these little things from TV shows and he would say them to us. Mm. So it was really muffled talk. You know how if you have a small child or like a toddler you're really close with, it's mm-hmm. kind of a language only you can understand. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he would say all these things to us and we would all understand and he'd say them in public and people would be like, what is he saying? So we'd kind of translate for him or things like that. Oh yeah. And then just over the next few years. So I'm like turning 10 and 11 and, um, It was actually pretty hard for my parents to care for him, so he moved to a group home about 45 minutes away where they had all the proper equipment and the right staff to care for him. Right. So then... um, So I stayed in school throughout all this, but just... Every weekend it was visiting him in the hospital, my brother and I playing those video games, like Super Mario, like all the toys that you could ever want that we didn't have at home. Like this was Mm -hmm. vacation for us. Mm -hmm. That hospital was like our safe haven. We loved playing there. We loved the nurses. So when he moved back home and it was too hard for my parents and he ended up going to that group home about 45 minutes away every weekend would be driving and then picking him up so he could stay home with us Mm -hmm. so he would come home on the weekends and then it's when i got older that i started to resent him because weekends were my for me weekends were for my friends i wanted to play with all my friends i had stuff to do i was a busy 12 year old (laughs) I, i had a social life i had to see my friends and my mom wouldn't let me because that was Kyle time. That was time for Kyle to come home so the five of us could be a family. Mm-hmm. And that's when I really started to resent him. And then as I'm turning thirteen, fourteen years old, I'm really I'm really upset. I mean, that's when it's all hitting me and that's when you wish you could have all the therapy classes back and yeah. all those things that they put you in. It's like Right, right. Oh. So I kind of felt like, okay It's four or five years after his accident. We always just call it the accident. That's how our family knows it. And it's like, it's four or five years after, and now I'm ready to talk about it, but nobody's asking.
0: Yeah, it's like it was on their time, not necessarily your time to yeah. find that healing, find those resources.
1: Well, I, I can imagine when something just traumatic happens. Like, I think every time you turn another year, you get gain a new understanding about it. Right. So I feel yeah. like that's probably true in your case. And so as a seven-year-old grasping yeah. that, it's like you're learning something new each year about right. and understanding more about how you're feeling about it each year. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that way
2: with your injury? Do you feel like you still are processing it like year after year? you're still like,
1: what happened? Oh, you're so, you're so nice to turn around and me. but um, <laughs> like, no, but but um, yeah, I think so. I think when something traumatic happens, you don't realize what's going on and I think you um, we naturally have instincts to just go on with life and then it's until after when things have kind of settled and you start realizing, oh, that was really hard and this is how I feel about it. it. Right, right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think
0: just the entire aftermath and how something like that can unfold and be different over different years is so interesting. And I I obviously haven't experienced it, but the American Psychological Association has an article that uh, we're gonna put in the show notes for this show about how family members have a hard time dealing with uh, their loved ones having a disorder. And it talks about some issues that I think are relatable in this case, even though it's a brain injury, where it talks about how often parents can have a hard time reevaluating their relationship with their child and how they sometimes have these really high expectations for how the parent-child relationship is gonna be. And it's hard to sort of change those when something like this happens. And I was just wondering, I know you talked about, you started developing these emotions of like resentment, or uh, confusion over what was happening, and did you notice anything in your parents, or how did their emotions develop? How did they change?
2: Um, Well, I won't speak on behalf of them, but I know as a child, you definitely notice some tension between your parents. You can tell when they're upset at each other. You can tell when things kind of aren't right. Yeah. So I know that they were just always tired. They were always on edge. They were always so worried about us. My younger brother and I, we could barely leave the house without wearing helmets. I mean, kids are so judgmental. I mean, I just remember all the neighborhood kids, No, nobody would wear helmets. And my mom bought us both helmets, and she said, if you if you don't wear these, you can't do it. And we didn't do it, so she won. <laughs> but, um, yeah, my parents, I, I don't want to hold anything against them on how they raised us but Mm -hmm. everything was definitely surrounded around my brother and his care and what he needed right and I feel like at the same time they were trying to keep it equal because Kyle couldn't have a regular social life they wanted to give him anything they could or anything that would help him or make him feel better So any type of retreat or things like that where everyone would get together, they'd sign him up for and we do those just so he could feel included and everything like that.
1: Did you? I'm just curious. Like, did you ever feel pressure to be like to not have anything wrong going on in your life since there was like this huge thing going on in his?
2: Absolutely. I feel like the whole dynamic changed of our family. You know how oldest child is the leader, middle child black sheep, the youngest one is funny. (laughs) And it felt like kind of the roles were reversed. I feel like I was thrown into the seat of the eldest child just because all of those experiences I was now doing, I would be the one to drive first. I would be the one to go to prom and college and all those things first, all the things that Kyle wouldn't be able to do. Right. And then, as you said, Laura, I just felt like if I had any real problems, they would just be insignificant to anything Mm -hmm. Kyle was going through. So, I mean... It was kind of harder to talk to my parents. We didn't have the best relationship in high school, but I feel like as I've since moved out and started my own life and my own career, I feel like we've gotten closer and I could call them and ask them things or tell them things.
0: So, I mean, your parents did so much to take care of him. They said, you know, we want to give Kyle everything we can give Kyle. And for you and for Luke, your younger brother, you Mm -hmm. really, it became very much about that. Did they ever feel the weight of that?
2: There were definitely troubles. We would do surprise visits at that group home he was staying at. Mm -hmm. And a couple times we showed up and he really wasn't receiving the best care. Having him go to the group home was was never something my parents wanted. They didn't want to have to do that. And I feel like because they had to, because they physically could not care for him, I feel like they might feel like they let him down or they feel like they failed as parents because they couldn't provide or care for the child. Mm-hmm. So they spent the rest of my middle school years working on getting him home. We renovated our house so his wheelchair could get up. So we have a little elevator above the stairs that brings his wheelchair up. Mm-hmm. And then we got the um, handicap accessible bathroom put in. Um, they did the whole addition into his bedroom Wow. They widened our hallways so his wheelchair could fit. Yeah. And nobody really knew what it would be like having him full-time. My mom worked full-time, and my dad was going to dedicate himself to stay at home and care for him Yeah. throughout this. So they had a plan and everything.
0: You said that there were some hard experiences as far as taking him to homes. Could you talk a bit more about that? Or I guess what I'm really curious about is – what? How did that make you think about how we as a society take care of people in this situation?
2: Uh huh. So his first group home that he stayed at, um, we did a surprise visit. I just remember it being maybe two or three o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. Like daylight, and he was just sitting in his room in his wheelchair, no music, no TV on no toys or anything and all the blinds were closed it was dark Mm. and he was just sitting in there so we kind of hinted like what what were you going to do is there a therapy scheduled or what does he have next what's the plan Mm
1: -hmm. and i don't
2: really i mean it's hard to remember what the answer was but i just remember that whatever they said was wrong whatever Mm. was happening was wrong because your
1: parents were furious
2: oh they wanted him out of there i don't think he stayed there much longer before we found the next home and we did have some issues there. We did another surprise visit, I'm sure a couple of years later. And so he sleeps in a, what's called a posy bed. It's kind of a okay. tent and it has the rails up because otherwise he could potentially mm-hmm. roll out. So it's kind of enclosed in. So he's zippered in, he can't get out. We did that surprise visit there. And I remember he was in his bed, um, no diaper on or anything covered in his own urine and feces, Mm. and my parents were so upset, and they tried to explain, I think they tried to explain that he was taking a nap, and he must have ripped it off, because sometimes Mm. he would do that. My parents had walked into him at home where he'd ripped his own diaper off. So, I mean, I think we let that one go, because that's the place we still go to, and Mm -hmm. those people are so great, it must have just been an early on type Mm -hmm. thing.
1: Where is he, like, mentally? Like, I know physically okay, he so has today,
2: Yeah, so today Kyle is 23 years old. He works at Functional Industries in Buffalo, Minnesota. So what they Ooh. do is they have sorting. So he'll mm-hmm. sort items. Oh, and wow. then he also, he'll put, um I think, blunt tips on syringes. And because he only has the function of his left hand, he must have someone that helps him. I haven't really seen him in action, but I've definitely seen his little... $2 paycheck that he is so proud to <laughs> show me. <laughs> so, so he can he, communicate.
1: And he was he ever able to communicate with your parents about the care he was receiving?
2: Um, no, nothing like that. Um, he functions at the level of about a 2- or 3-year-old. Mm-hmm. I think he has the ability to memorize things if given the time. So if you ask him, Kyle, what are the nine planets? He'll tell you all the planets. He can recite his ABCs. He can recite songs, little poems that we've taught him. But what I think differs from an actual two year old. So I have a two and a half year old little cousin and she's starting to get into the phase. Why? She asks me why, Mm -hmm. why all the time? Why do I love her? Why do I have to drive her to school? Why does the sun set every day? She'll ask me these questions. And I really don't think that Kyle will ever have the ability to question anything to Mm -hmm. ask why. And Mm -hmm. I think that's what separates him from progressing further.
0: So, you know, we're getting into the present day now. But I guess to wrap up, you know, how things unfolded from childhood all the way until now. um, What do you think you learned that other kids might not have learned or that other people might not have learned from having grown up with your brother or your loved one having this condition and having to be really conscious of and care for someone in your family?
2: I just think that every day I'm still processing. Every year, like I said, we just hit the 14th anniversary of his accident. I think if he had a disorder from birth, that I grew up with, and that my parents were ready to take on and care for since birth. I'm not sure if he was born with the disorder. Would I still be processing, or would it be yeah. more of an acceptance thing? Because it would have been all
0: you, all you knew.
2: Yes. Uh huh. So now it feels like I lost the brother I once knew, and now I'm meeting this new guy. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's still, I feel like we're still getting to know each other all the time. I mean. <laughs> He always says something new that I missed out on or that I wasn't there when he learned it or things like that. And I'm like, oh, wow. No,
0: that's I think that's oh. really cool. Like that openness to meeting this new guy to having right. a relationship, knowing it'll be a different relationship, but, mm-hmm. you know, still caring about that relationship. Um, and
2: I have to say something, too, about his temperament. He is always happy, always oh. happy. Like every time you see him, he's just so, so happy So I think that's why it helps me with the situation. I look at it, Mm. and I see him smiling. And the other day he said to me, he asked me, new necklace? New necklace? So he was wondering (laughs) if I got a new necklace. And I said, it is a new necklace. So it's just those little things that will surprise me. And I kind of take a step back and think, you know... Things are pretty good. I mm-hmm. think things are great. And it is a new necklace and I am happy to wear it. Like those <laughs> types of things. It's just all the you little know,
1: Most guys don't notice that, so that's pretty much right? yeah. like, oh. ahead of the game. <laughs> I know. He's, yeah,
2: he's way ahead of most guys. <laughs>
0: that's really cool. And so you mm-hmm. one more thing about, you know, how you've gone through all this through life. You said it really helps you that he's happy a lot of the time.
2: Absolutely. How would you
0: relate that to if someone had a family member who was depressed, you know, who could still function in a lot of the oh. ways Kyle can't. But do you think mm-hmm. that would be harder in some ways, easier in others? Or do you think they can be related?
2: I'll, I'll look at it maybe from my parents' perspective. I think if they were caring for him and he had this traumatic brain injury and came out depressed and anxious and just sad all the time, I think it would be hard for them. I think... So, I mean, yeah, I think his happiness really just helps them. And I think at the, at this point, it's important because they are caring for him. They are the ones that see him every day yeah. as opposed to me who sees him maybe a couple times a month.
0: Mm. Yeah, I was just curious because I, I think that's one of the things that makes it so hard about having a loved one who's suffering from something is when it's your loved mm-hmm. one, you care so much about them. And I think it's almost sometimes harder for family members to really care for someone and be there for someone because they have right. just that weight on them of, you know, caring mm-hmm. for their feelings. And I mean, that's a, that's a cool silver lining that you can mm-hmm. be happy that he's right. happy at least.
1: I think a lot of times when people, when a family member or a loved one, you know, is going through something hard, you can feel really helpless because you want right. to fix it. And I think we all have that mentality like, oh, there's a problem. Let me fix it. Right. And I just can't imagine being in your parents' position where they, they couldn't fix it and having to come to some sort of piece about that of like yeah. this is the best that we can do and this is this right. is our future now absolutely that that sums it all up yeah that I mean
0: speaking forward. of that pressure to to do something I'd love to talk about your career Angela that yeah.
2: so I was at Minneapolis Community and Technical College for a year doing generals and then it was my second year that I found the neurodiagnostics program. And what was highlighted on the little pamphlet of the program um, was EEGs. And I thought, oh, Kyle has had an EEG. Um, I, I love it. I had no idea how much I loved it or how much I feel like I can relate to patients. Um, mm. We'll have patients come in and they'll ask me how long I've been doing it. And then I just tell them, oh, I'm, I'm pretty new. I just started full-time. Um, beginning of this year, and they're kind of surprised, but when I share my story with them, I share, oh, I grew up watching um, my brother get this, and they'll kind of look at me and just ask, oh, your your brother, does Does he have a seizure, or he has seizures, and I'll say, yeah, he, he does, and I feel like they kind of let their guard down for a little bit, because mm-hmm. especially when you're working with children, um, they also say, the child is the patient. The parents are the patients. They're all the patients. You're treating <laughs> right. everybody. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of rough when the kid doesn't really care. The kid's like, oh, I'm skipping school today. This is, couldn't be better. And the parents are so, so nervous. Yeah. So I feel like it helps to put them at ease when you can relate to them and mm. just kind of give them the okay that your brother's had this test done. It's
1: something that... It won't hurt and things like that yeah that's, that's so i mean i i remember when i was in the hospital just having a nurse that was really empathetic just made yeah. a huge difference and yeah so, that's awesome exactly so
2: basically i'll just give the rundown of an eeg eeg stands for electroencephalogram an electroencephalogram is a test that monitors the electrical activity of the brain the mri is the picture and the eeg is the function So we use MRI and EEG together to diagnose. So EEG mainly looks at seizure activity. Um, There are different patterns that the epileptologist will look at to find seizures or any abnormalities. Basically, any alteration of consciousness, it's likely that person will have an EEG.
0: Mm. So you're doing this basically all day, every day? what uh kinds of what are the typical things you see or even what are the less typical but interesting things you've seen
2: so there's something called a psychogenic seizure where the body is seizing but the brain is not Mm -hmm. they're usually treated with um they're usually referred right to like psych it's not something that we would you know treat
0: i mean i think (laughs) it's interesting though like the relationship between you know if someone is not actually having a seizure in their brain but their body is seizing versus someone right. who is having a full-on uh, brain and body seizure that mm-hmm. um you know the former even if the brain isn't having a seizure to me like that's still something's still happening to you right if you're right even if you are absolutely. faking it like something's some, happening a, psychologically that's making you do that yes. so in my mind it's it's still something there is something we that treat. will be
2: treated yeah yes so as you guys may or may not know, November is Epilepsy Awareness Month. and <laughs> so what I, I, I
0: did that. see your text of that, yeah. <laughs> I, yes, cool.
2: yes. So I feel like most people think that seizures are dropping to the ground, shaking, losing bowel or bladder, um, drooling, foaming at the mouth, and you know, really those, Those happen, definitely, Mm -hmm. Um, but there's so much more that happens. A lot of them can just be people being confused, and a lot of people who have epilepsy who we see that come in, they didn't know that they've been having seizures. I think what people don't realize is how much epilepsy impacts people's lives. I mean, the stories I've heard, um, I had a new mother recently. This must have been last month. Um, she just had her baby and everything. So she was put back on her anti-seizure medications uh-huh. and she couldn't even hold her baby unsupervised because they thought she'd have a seizure and drop the baby. Wow. And there are people that, so first thing that's... Was she, it, I mean, that's got to be
0: devastating, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's It's really hard to hear these stories. I think... Growing up and starting the, in this career, I didn't realize how debilitating it is for people high-functioning who have epilepsy. Um, they don't have the ability to drive, mm-hmm. not being able to hold your kids, not being able to cook or go swimming. Right. It's just all of these hazards that
0: things. You, there happen. are probably so many activities you wouldn't even imagine having right. epilepsy would be an issue for. I had a professor who... Mm at the beginning of our class announced that he had epilepsy um, oh, wow. because we had to know, right? I mean, if, if he yeah, started if having something a happen. yeah, it's definitely something I think probably isn't in the mind of most people walking around. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you say are some of the most powerful moments you've had at work or the most impactful uh, people you've seen stories you've heard?
2: Um, we spend day to day at the main hospital and we'll do kids, and then if an order comes in at the adult mental health clinic, we'll go over there and see those patients. Yeah. And from time to time, usually before I see these patients, I'll read their charts and kind of get an idea of what I'm getting myself into. Mm -hmm. So I read this case that this guy, um, that this patient was so violent, he ripped a fire extinguisher off the wall and threatened to hit his dad with it and ended up throwing it at the wall. Wow! And I was told I had to go in on this patient next. Uh, (laughs) I was pretty (laughs) nervous and I I really didn't want to go alone. I was a little bit scared. And um, for our adult mental health patients, they always have what's called a sitter who will come in the room with them or walk them to their appointments throughout the clinic and hospital. And... I mean, I was scared, but I knew I'd have that sitter. So the sitter yeah. was in the room, and he was one of the sweetest guys I've ever met. He was so sweet to me. He was interested in what I was doing. He asked me about my family, <sighs> and we got to talk. And then he left the room, and I felt ridiculous. I felt so silly for worrying about that the fact that he might hurt me or do something. Uh-huh. So that happened multiple times, actually, wow. where I had read horrific things on the charts or read about how depressed they are, and yeah.
0: Or certain diagnoses the... might have given you an yes. idea. Yes,
2: um, there'll be there are so many cases of um, suicidal ideation. So I was so worried. Do I do I have to hide the scissors in the room? Do I have mm. to get rid of the plastic bags? But no, absolutely not. These all of these patients were so respectful everybody was personable so i kind of stopped reading these charts before they would come in because it really it it put this picture in my mind that wasn't fair to them it wasn't fair to me it wasn't fair for me to judge them before they even entered the room yeah so Uh, that's so that's,
0: that's honestly fascinating you say you stopped reading the charts um there's this town in belgium called hail i've heard it pronounced okay. Geel, but it's g-e-e-l uh uh-huh. belgium and it's this town where there's a long tradition of families in the town will take people with mental illness or mental disorder in and take care of them and it's run through the government where people with disorders will be brought to the homes and uh the fascinating thing about it is they're not told anything about the people's history with mental illness or mental disorder. They're not told anything about incidents wow. they've had. They're just sent to the homes, and the only instruction or guideline is take them in and treat them as part of your family.
2: Wow, that's Which, amazing.
0: Yeah, and it's you know it's not as if there's a big longitudinal study, but just hearing about it anecdotally. And I first learned about Hale— from another podcast called invisibilia that did an episode about mental illness um, and talked a lot about the town. And then from leading reading online uh, they've gotten really good results and people tend to function really well compared to how we handle patients. So I think that's fascinating that just on your own, you came up with something so similar.
2: (laughs) Right. Absolutely. I just, Yeah. And then just, it's such a simple concept. I mean, don't judge people. Weren't we taught that way? Weren't we raised that way not to judge people? Mm. And I think the same thing should apply for everyone. Yeah. Right. mm.
0: I mean, I know you said it was so hard taking care of Kyle. You had all these issues with how, you know, as a society, it's very hard. Things aren't necessarily Uh set up to be able to take care of someone who's been through something like that. I feel like there are similar patterns with the mentally ill or Absolutely. people who are struggling where we are very mm-hmm. institutionalized and we are quick to a lot of certain solutions that are dependent on, you know, definitions and labels and a diagnosis. I think it's worth at least questioning.
2: Um, I'll just say that Coming across all these different mental disorders and diagnosis, diagnosi, <laughs> like <what are> the <laughs> diagnoses, <laughs> diagnoses. That's a false
0: Latinization, you. Angela.
2: Yes. <laughs> 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 so coming across all these diagnoses and mental disorders, there's just, there's no definition that fits any disorder. It's not like every person who... Has se- I'll have severe depression on the chart, I'll read severe depression on the chart, suicidal ideation, and those words jump out at you and they kind of scare you when you're reading it and you're about to meet someone. Because mm-hmm. I remember, like you guys said in your first podcast, it's not really something you bring up in a first conversation. You don't really say, hi, I'm, I'm Laura, hi, I'm Spencer, I have depression, yeah. I have this. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, you can, but <laughs> right.
1: it might not go over well.
2: <laughs> right. So to read these things and then meet the people, it just kind of feels like it's not fair. It feels kind of like I know something, they know something, or we both kind of are beating around the bush. And And there's like a
0: dissociation, right? It's like you say you see that someone has that condition and you're like, wow, they're they're like existing on a different plane from me. You know, they're like, they're nothing to do with me. It's almost like you dissociate with them as humans when if you see someone Absolutely. who's physically sick you would never say oh you're fever you like right. I'm, I'm staying away from you um,
2: Exactly. i just think
0: it's so crazy how we think it's about just,
2: it it's just yeah there's just so it's hard to treat someone It's hard not to treat someone different. Is there a better way to say that? When you know what their diagnosis is or what you know, their mental disorder. Um, Even
0: if you're conscious of it, it probably Oh,
2: absolutely. I do my best every day to just clean the slate. I go in and, yeah. (laughs) I I I mean,
0: it's really just kind of in culture, right? I I think there's not even, just as there's not, I don't think, shame in having these conditions. I don't think there should be too much shame in feeling that way or having that reaction because it is natural with, you know, how we Talk about the conditions. That
2: that is a good perspective because I I will sometimes beat myself up when I think about these things or when I I, I ask myself did I treat that patient differently because I knew that they have schizophrenia did I treat mm. them different because they have Down syndrome yeah. did I treat them different because of this or
0: I do wonder I just, if um if it even has an effect on them where. I mean, especially when people are young with what you talked about and how you were brought in to see a psychologist or a therapist and uh-huh. they were projecting a lot of feelings on you that right, you should feelings. be feeling this way about Kyle, even if you weren't. And I wonder if the way we uh, box people in based on a diagnosis and treat them and conceive of them can right. have maybe not the best effect on their self-perception.
2: Yeah, all these projections on how you should feel or how we should treat people, I really think that needs to be reevaluated. It's just um I do have a question.
1: So, yeah. So, th- speaking of, we were talking about how when somebody knows something about you and you haven't expressed that to them, it's like they they um they feel like they know you or they make these judgments about you um before even just having a conversation with you and really getting to know you face to face and for me like I I think of you Spencer doing Survivor yeah. like you've had to feel that way like when people come up to you and and the you're person. like oh I don't know you and but they're they're acting like they oh know you but so they well. feel like oh, they
0: know totally. you yeah
1: right
2: yeah.
0: Yeah, I, I won't spend long talking about my situation because it is not as interesting, frankly. Well, yeah. But it's, it's it's very true that I think when someone has a preconceived notion of you, you're not even really interacting with them. And that goes for right. the people right. who have a bad perception of me or a good perception of me. Some of the most frustrating Absolute. interactions I've had have been people who – Really like me or think they do because of what they saw on Survivor, and I'm talking to them, and it's as if it doesn't matter what I say. No matter what I say, they're just uh, they're just like, oh, you know, that's awesome, and it the interaction just like isn't real. Frankly, right? It's
2: not like they're talking to you; they're talking to A the character. version of you yeah. they want you to be, or <laughs> exactly those types of things. So I
0: think the way yeah. we label and the way we can get an idea of someone without just being in the moment. And mm-hmm. truly hearing them, actually interacting with them is powerful. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Yeah, that's why it's just it really feels guilty to look into their charts and read their histories before I meet them. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand <laughs> there are definitely some cases you want you wanna read up um, just so you can be providing the best cares, yeah, but yeah. it's almost like someone's like reading my journal before they meet me. It feels like it's just right. they're so vulnerable by the time I meet them you never know. So that's why it's, it's hard to look into those things before you meet someone. And again, you don't want to judge someone.
0: Yeah. I like that you said, you know, sometimes you do need to know because, you know, I don't want to completely denounce oh, yeah. diagnosing. <laughs> I do think we need, <laughs> right. you know, yeah. doctors have a really important job and we actually, I think, need more psychiatrists. Um, then maybe it wouldn't be two months to be on the waiting list to see one. Right, Um, yes, that's
2: the waiting list.
0: (laughs) It's it's a hard uh, contrast because we need more psychiatrists. I also feel like I want to take a look at how we do things. Mm -hmm. You've been awesome, Angela. You've said uh, so much that has made me think um, that I didn't even see this interview going toward everything you've said.
2: Well, I'm glad. I really, I didn't think I had a story worth sharing. I didn't
0: definitely do. Oh, it's absolutely. just life
1: now. It's just... Yeah. Just, but I just, I'm so impressed. Like, I'm, I, I think it'd be so easy for somebody who's had your story with your family background to have a lot of bitterness. Okay. And instead, yeah. you have so much compassion for so many people and you're working in that field. And um, so, I don't know. I just feel really inspired. Yeah, just glad say, I just want to
2: say, thank you. Thank you guys so much. You guys are great. I... I love your voices already. You guys have
0: such, <laughs> That's all, so Laura. Chemistry on. Sarah I'm Kanan, like, <laughs> look out! Laura has the podcasting voice.
2: Voices, I just lull me into conversation <laughs> anytime. <And>, <laughs> awesome! I can't wait for
0: more. Um, Are you up for one more question?
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. What would
0: be your number one piece of advice to close us out for mm-hmm. someone who's going to do your job or someone who's going to interact with people struggling with a disorder or any other kind of? Uh, ailment?
2: I would just say be patient, open-minded, and accepting. Uh, I think just accepting of everything is really important because I'll have some high functioning children with epilepsy, Down syndrome, all types of disorders and they will be high functioning and able to converse with me and then I'll get everything on that spectrum. I'll have children and adults who are nonverbal or aren't able to communicate these things with me. And I think because my job is so hands-on, I'm physically touching Mm -hmm. these people. I think it's just important for me to constantly be conversing, talking, sharing stories, talking about myself if they're unable to communicate. Because what I want the most is for them to feel comfortable. I want everyone to feel comfortable because, it, it, like I said before, it's such you're so vulnerable like especially having me touch your head you're getting this test done it can be scary and I bet someone
0: who is open and compassionate non-judgmental like you that must be such a valuable trait I mean people are going to be the most receptive to that I would think you know you no one wants to open up or be helped by someone who thinks they they don't know right right. yeah
2: exactly yeah most people don't really no one's asking for my help no one's requested it but i'm just gonna keep lending it if i can if they'll take it
0: well thank you so much thank angela you, you yeah. were a dream first guest thank you
2: yes good <laughs> it was great to meet you great, see see ya. Ya.
0: all right that was our interview with angela losi we got into so much I hope you have thoughts on it that you wanna share. Again, tweet us, let us know what you think, at SpencerBGM for me, at the Girl for Laura. We always love hearing from you. We really hope you loved that interview as much as we did. And now we're rolling, it's exciting on this podcast. We're gonna be coming out with a new episode every Wednesday. So you can mark it in your calendar, Wednesdays, we will have new episodes for you. We would really appreciate it if you like the show, if you would please subscribe. If you'd take a second to rate us on iTunes, that goes a long way toward more people seeing the podcast. And most importantly, we so appreciate you spreading the word.
1: Yes. And many of you have already, but continue to join the conversation. You're an important part of this. It's not just about us. You're a part of our community and you can tweet us um, like Spencer said, or you can head over to our temporary website called redeemingdisorder.wordpress.com and leave us a comment or contact us and share your story. But thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.